Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods, and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. Hey, what's up, amigos? It's Chris Lewitt broadcasting live. Prodigy Maker Show, episode 32. I'm here with my Tennis Academy dog, Sammy, who's just chilling right now. And I just wanted to apologize for missing you all last night. As some of you may know, we had a little issue with Baby Ocean, and I had to put the baby to bed, so we had to postpone the show. But I'm happy to be coming to you live now from my home in the New York City area, and we'll do this show Friday morning, which is kind of cool because I know a lot of my international audience, oftentimes they don't get to catch the show live, so this is a good opportunity for you guys to tune in and ask any questions you may have. So today I want to talk about red, orange, green, and U10 tennis. I want to go over some of the myths or the way I see junior development with the different colored balls and graduated court sizes and graduated equipment as well because I think I have a perspective on that that's different than what you hear commonly now uh, around the world and also especially in the U.S. here. So I want to dive into that topic. It's maybe a controversial topic because there's so much shuck and jive going on about red, orange, green, ROG, I'll just use ROG as, a, as the acronym, but using low compression balls and graduated court, so controversial now. In the U.S., we have a mandate. In the world now, we have a mandate that U10, players under 10, have to play with low compression balls. And, you know, I think it's a, a very hot topic. I get many questions from parents about whether their child should be playing with a red ball or an orange ball or a green ball or a yellow ball. So it's a very common topic that I discuss with parents. I do a lot of consulting on that. And so we'll sort of do a talk today that is basically, I'm going to try to talk to you guys as if I talk to a parent. I'm a parent myself. And I I think all parents want to make the best decisions for their kids in terms of junior development and also for coaches out there who are training kids in the red, orange, green or on graduated courts and using graduated equipment. I think I'll give you another perspective that you can use to maybe challenge the status quo, challenge the prevailing viewpoints that are out there right now because there's a lot of slick marketing behind U10 tennis nowadays and I don't want to say propaganda but I will say that it is a lot like propaganda there's a lot of misinformation 
or disinformation, and there's a lot of very sharp advertising to try to promote U10 tennis and smaller rackets, low compression balls, and some of that is a positive for tennis, and some of that I think, especially from a high performance point of view, is not always the best way to develop a kid. So let's dive into it. I was writing last week about some of the myths of red, orange, green tennis, and one of the biggest myths or areas that I see where where parents are concerned about is injury prevention. And what I would like to say is that although it makes some intuitive sense that using a softball and a, a shorter, lighter racket would prevent injuries. There's no, we have no studies of that. We have no scientific evidence of that. And we should try to make decisions as coaches and parents as much as we can based on evidence and use an evidence-based approach. But as to my knowledge, there are, are no good ev- evidential studies that prove that using a softer ball or a shorter racket is going to prevent injuries in young kids. So I'd like to throw that out there as number one as we sort of talk about this issue. If you're logging in and you have questions about red, orange, green, or yellow ball, when to start yellow ball, or you know junior development questions regarding graduated courts or equipment, please let me know and I will answer them. I know I have a couple questions that I took this week from my mailbox, so I'll try to jump on that as well. I know I had one student who told me that I have to mention how stupid the mandate is for tournament play, uh, the, especially here in the U.S. We have a mandate where you have to play an orange ball progress progression, which many parents and kids find really cumbersome and a big turnoff for for their young. Uh, their young player, so I had to throw that in there right off the bat. I know that's for one of my students. He said, Chris, you got to talk about the orange ball progression and what a pain in the butt it is, so I wanted to throw that in there, but in terms of injury prevention, this, I think, is one of the big myths that, you know, parents come to me and they say, well, Chris, my my club, or I read with some marketing, I read some marketing materials, some materials on junior junior tennis development or sometimes in the US we call it taught ten and under tennis or around the world has different names U10 tennis I'm gonna call it red orange green for lack of a better for, for lack of a better term maybe I'll use some different terms but you know most parents the biggest concern is probably injury and I just think it's it's just not true that you, you want if a coach or a club tells you that your kids gonna get injured or they're, they're, they're going to run a very high risk of injury uh, if they play with a yellow ball, for example, at a young age, let's say five, six, seven, or eight. Or even if they play with a full-size racket. For me, I'm more concerned with the racket. I don't like a uh, little tiny tiger using a huge stick. I think the, the racket makes the most sense to adjust the size of the racket to the player. But in my experience, most players use too light a racket and too small a racket. But in general... The ball, this is just pure opinion, guys. This is pure speculation. We don't have any proof that if you use a soft ball, you're not going to get hurt uh, as compared to a yellow ball. And in fact, 
if you play with a softball for a long time and then you make the transition to yellow, I think I could make a pretty good argument that there is a risk or higher risk of getting injured at that stage, that transition stage where you haven't been, you're not used to a yellow ball, the muscular is not conditioned, and you start playing with the yellow ball and you're not, you're not comfortable with it, not getting in good position, and I think there could be a risk of injury during that transition phase. So you have to weigh all of these factors when deciding what colored ball to use with your kids. I think probably the smartest thing is to use a graduated size racket. So to adjust the racket for your player, depending on their size, don't go by age, go by size, because sometimes you get a big kid, five, six, or seven, who's pretty strong, they can use a full-size racket, very light full-size racket, or they can use a 26-inch racket uh, that's pretty light or light enough. You don't want to go too light because you want the kids to get strong. You want them to wield that thing and get stronger with every repetition. So that's another, I think, common mistake is parents will go too light on the racket. Obviously, you don't want the racket too heavy where it's difficult to manage, but at the same time, you don't want to go too light because you want to get the arm or the arms of that little tiger are super strong. The wrist, the, the forearm, the, 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 the entire arm musculature, you want to strengthen those areas, the grip. And if you use too light a racket, you don't get the best result over time. Over a long period of time, the player's not going to be as strong or producing as much power with the, with the arms or the body. So that is, I think, a really important factor. One of the biggest things with... They're, they're, it's such a big issue, big topic. I could probably do a, a couple different podcasts on it, a couple different shows, and I may continue the topic in a future show. I know I, I want to do a future show on some of Wayne Bryan's thoughts on red, orange, green, and U10 tennis. He's been a big critic. I have a lot of respect for Wayne as a tennis parent and a great coach, so he's got a really good tennis mind. So I, I definitely want to do a show coming up. I have one planned where we're going to talk about some of Wayne Bryan's thoughts and insights regarding 10 and under tennis, 10 and under tennis in, in particular, also the USDA structure and tournament structure in the U.S. and things like that, player development. So that's coming up. You know, that's on tap for the future. That's teed up for the future. But in general, one of the, the biggest things that Wayne says is that U10 should probably be called U6. And I'm, I agree with that 100%. I really believe that U10 is, is wrong. It's late. It's late to the game in terms of high performance. In terms of high performance, you want to get your little Tigers going with a yellow ball somewhere between six and eight if they're talented. Remember, I work with a lot of gifted and talented kids, so these are good athletes. Almost every talented kid can play with a yellow ball between the age of six and eight. They have good eyes, they have good hands, they have good feet, and you teach them how to move so the ball doesn't bounce way above their shoulder. And I think that's critical. With the yellow ball, the faster ball at that age, those kids feel a good challenge. It's an appropriate challenge for them. And they're able to learn how to move quickly and efficiently and with agility to get into position. When you use a softer, slower ball with a talented kid, it's actually holding the back. They're actually not developing those. There is some, something is wrong with, with junior development right now in U10, where I see so many players especially over here in the U.S., you see many, many players who they're coming out of the young age divisions. They're coming out of these programs uh, that are focused with the red ball or the orange ball, spending a lot of time in orange ball, a lot of time in green ball. Sometimes the kids are spending 
up to 12 years old in this softball. Sorry, I lost you guys there. Hope the connection's okay. If you play with a softball on a small court for many, many years, you're losing so much in terms of the development time. You are oftentimes hitting the ball too soft. For some reason, the players don't develop power. So this is a big, big concern that I have. I'm not exactly sure why. It could be the light racket. It could be the lack of mass of the ball, the light weight of the ball. But... I see many, many players, big concern for me, and I don't hear a lot of coaches talking about it, and certainly parents sometimes aren't aware of it, that if you play many years, especially I think with red and orange, let's say all the way 8 to 10, and then you stay with green from 11 to 12, a lot of programs are doing that now. You, you get a kid at 12 years old or 11 or 12 who just can't crush the ball. I don't know if it's the teaching career, curriculum like the emphasis is more on control it could have to do with it it could be all of these factors the teaching curriculum it could be the the mass of the ball it could be the mass and the weight of the racket something is contributing to to a lack of power for junior kids which i think is the kiss of death if you want to develop a high performance player an elite player so one of the keys when i'm working with little little juniors little phenoms prodigies is i'm trying to get them to hit the ball hard you want a little kid to learn how to develop maximum power at a young age. And also they need to control that power. So it's a, it's a never-ending journey. It's always a balance between developing more and more power and learning how to control that power with good skills and good technique. So something is going wrong in the 10 and under environment. And now I would say sometimes it's a 12 and under environment, and I think it should be a 6 and under environment. The way, the way Wayne Bryan talks about it, you know, 6 and under makes sense to me. To me, the whole marketing scheme, the whole program for 10 and under would be so much better if we hit it when the kids were young, 6 and under. So we call it U6 tennis. Or even U8 tennis. In the past, I said U8 tennis, but I really like U6 tennis. And we'd really focus on getting the kids playing red and orange at that age and then transition them quickly through green or yellow uh, between 6 and 10 or 6 and 8. You know, to me, that would be so awesome if we reorganized the program and reorganized the effort and dialed down the age divisions a little bit. It would be much more appropriate for high performance. The way it's structured now is sort of like it's really good for recreational and it's really good for kids who have no talent, for kids who are not athletic. But for the kids who are athletic and talented, it holds them back. It keeps them in a system that, that doesn't help them develop their skills and their athleticism. And it's just not geared to the high performance player, to the, the talented player, the phenom, the, the, the gifted player, the, the prodigy type player, or even medi medium athletes, you know, athletes who are sort of maybe not off the, the end of the bell curve, but they're kind of uh, average to above average athletes. Most of those kids can play pretty young with uh, a yellow ball if they're trained properly, if they're trained to move well, if they're trained to adjust to the incoming ball, they're trained to read well and receive the ball well. They can learn how to play with a yellow ball without much struggle. And they should also play with a, as heavy a stick as they can wield 
and a full-size racket so that they, they can learn to hit powerfully on the full court. The full court is an issue too. Playing on the full court is really important. I don't buy the analogy that playing on a tennis court, a full tennis court, is similar to trying to get little kids to play on a big soccer field or a, a full-size baseball field because they're not the same dimensions. You know, you see that argument a lot that little kids shouldn't be able to play, shouldn't be forced to play on on an adult-sized tennis court, and they make the comparison to soccer or other sports. Like, we wouldn't ask kids to play on a full-size soccer pitch. But I think it's a false comparison because the tennis court is quite small uh, for an adult. It's not a big space, you know, one, you know 120 feet by 120, um, the, the full dimensions of one court, more or less. And I think for little kids, definitely little kids who have some speed and ability, between six years old, even between five and ten, between six and eight, five and ten, little kids can cover the full-size tennis court. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a myth that young kids need a small court. So I'm a big believer in getting the kids as quickly as possible onto the full size of the court, number one, because they're going to run more and they're going to be challenged more in their movement skills and movement capabilities. And it's going to also challenge their eyes. They're going to have to uh, visualize the entire space and track down balls in a larger area rather than in a very confined space. The other thing that I think is, is important about the bigger using the full court is that when the little kid plays on the full court, they learn to hit big. They learn to hit with more power and they learn to drive through the ball and make full extension and make full swings. Uh, many times, especially when you put a talented kid on the small court, they don't swing as fast. They don't swing as fully because they don't want to miss the ball long. They don't want to hit the ball out. So that is a, a huge issue that I see in terms of uh, 10 and under tennis or red, orange, green development is you get some big, strong kids who are stuck in a small court, in a small space, and they actually don't, they don't accelerate through those years. It could be two years in orange. Sometimes we play two years in orange here in the U.S. And to me, those are lost years for many kids. They are, it's, it's killing those kids. You know, they're not able to hit out. They're maybe abbreviating their swings. And many times on the small orange court, the 60-foot court, the kids are not challenged with their movement. They're very sloppy with their footwork, lazy with their footwork. They're not dynamic in their movement. And their eyes are not being tested the way you would on the full court with the fast-moving ball. So these are serious, serious issues with the structure of 10 and under tennis, and I hope that at some point the powers at that be will, will reanalyze the whole movement of 10 and under tennis and maybe reorganize and refocus the game on U6 or maybe U8. Maybe U8's a little less controversial than, than U6, but I think the whole scheme, the whole program should be reorganized into U6, and that to me would be ideal. We try to get little kids going in the game at three, four, five years old and try to uh, get them to a yellow ball between seven and eight. That would be just fantastic. And that, that would leave the entire program in place, but just sort of refocus it in a, in a better way, in a, in a, in a better way for, for the kids who are a little more uh, athletic and it wouldn't penalize the kids who are less athletic. They would still get a lot of the fun and the... Uh, the, for the recreational kids, they would, we would still capture them. 
And that is one of the, the, the great things about, I will say a positive about red, orange, green and 10 under tennis is it's fun. You get a lot of engagement, very good for growing the game at the bottom of the triangle. So for the grassroots, I think the movement is very positive. In the last 10 years, this is, a, this is really a, a brand new push to try to get all of the young kids in the game playing with low compression balls on a, on a soft, uh, on a small court and with smaller rackets. It's in, in that sense, in terms of growing the game, it's a huge positive because it makes the game easier to learn and more fun to play when, when you're young. And that is part of the marketing hype that's true. It's real. It's, it's a big positive for tennis to get more kids playing earlier and more kids having a lot of fun with the game. But don't confuse that or conflate that with a system that's good for high performance. And that to me is the biggest untruth, the biggest myth, the biggest, I would say scam in, in 10 and under tennis is that the, the two are conflated, that you have this great system or program to get more kids enthusiastic and enthusiastically involved in the game. But you have the people that write these, these marketing campaigns, the people who produce the advertising and who, the people who are selling this campaign, they will not only claim that, but they'll say, you should also use red, orange, green. You should also use 10 under tennis because it's, it's going to be better for your child's development. They're going to become a better player. They're going to learn better technique. I mean, we can get into that myth too. They're going to become a, a better uh, world-class player. They're going to become, an, this is better for, to develop elite players. And that to me is probably the biggest piece of propaganda that I really object to because it's one thing to say that you have a program or a system that's going to make the game more fun, that's going to grow the game, that's going to create more players at the base of the pyramid. That's fantastic. Who wouldn't want that for tennis? That is a beautiful thing. But on the other hand, don't conflate that with saying by saying, okay, by the way, because you're trying to sell your program to me. You're trying to sell this system to me as a parent or a coach or whatever. And don't tell me now that you have, that you are, that this is a better way to develop elite players. That's a big leap. That's a whole nother ball game to say that this is a, a program that's going to make my little kid uh, d develop the best technique to develop into a better player by 12 or 14 or 16 years old because there's absolutely no evidence of that. We have no evidence. That's complete opinion. That is somebody's perspective and it's unproven. And so I just have a, I have to sort of, I have to try to educate parents and coaches when coaches come to, to train with me or uh, parents come to work with me. This is such a, such a common discussion now that parents are under the impression that this is a better system for high performance, when in fact, there's a lot of detriments to the system. The, the system can oftentimes undermine high performance development. And I have a lot of parents that believe that this program will prevent injuries, will assure them of, of, of no injuries. And it may assure no injuries, but it's going to hold many, many players back, especially those on the gifted side. But you could say that about anything. You could say that about teaching the modern forehand or teaching a kick serve at a young age or teaching any, any modern biomechanics. You could say that they, they carry a slightly higher risk of injury. They all do. 
but we all teach them because we need to develop kids on the cutting edge. We, need, we can't just teach kids uh, techniques from, from the ancient past when the whole world is moving to modern biomechanics. So there are, you, know, you make decisions in junior development that are always ba hopefully balanced decisions where you say, okay, you balance the risk to benefit ratio and you say, okay, if there's more benefit to me using a yellow ball and a full-size racket and a full court uh, those, ben those benefits outweigh the, the small increase in risk, if there are, of using... Uh Sorry guys, bus busy morning here, getting some, some calls on the line. Uh, then, then playing with a heavier stick or, or, or using a, 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 a ball with more mass that moves faster and may bounce higher. You know, you have to weigh these risks, to, the risk to benefit as a parent and a coach. And to my mind, it's, there's, no, there's no doubt about it that the benefits of using a yellow ball, younger, the benefits of using a, a heavier, longer racket, within reason, right? You want to be safe, but use common sense. Uh, the benefits of using a full court far outweigh any risk to injury. And I can, in my mind, the benefits to the player in terms of performance are huge. And they outweigh some of the, the other arguments that you see for using the graduated courts and softballs uh, which are mainly the tactical development of the player, the, the full-court tactical development. I, I don't really buy that you have to teach tactics to a young kid at, at that age. You know, most kids at that age, that's another argument that you hear for red, orange, green, and 10 and under. You hear that, oh, we're going to get much better tactical and mental um, uh, strategic development. Players will be willing to go to the net and develop the all-court game. And, yeah, that's one method of doing it. But most kids at a young age, there's not much tactical going on. They need to learn how to be consistent. They need to learn, understand, learn to understand basic attack and defense. They need to learn different zones of the court and how to move their opponent around. Just tactical basics. At that age, you don't need a small court and softballs to teach that. You can teach that with the yellow ball. It's all about good coaching. Everything comes down to good coaching. So I don't really buy the idea that you can't develop a kid tactically, strategically with the, with the yellow ball. And I also uh, I just don't believe that, that the technique can't be developed well with the yellow ball. I've been doing it for uh, decades now here in New York, and it's not that difficult to develop a decent athlete with great technique, very good biomechanics, grips that aren't overly extreme. It's not that difficult to do that if you keep an eye on the kid and monitor them well, if you know what you're looking for, and you coach a kid well. So biggest thing is make, to make sure that the player is able to receive the ball well. They're moving well, their eyes are tracking well, and they're not taking balls above their head or shoulder. And you don't need the balls to, co to compensate for that. You don't, you don't need to look at a kid and say, oh, the ball's bouncing high, I got to switch the balls. To me, that's misguided. If the ball's bouncing high, what you want to say to a kid is, okay, you need to observe that ball better, see it sooner, and adjust your feet to get into position. Move back, or you teach them the skill of taking the ball on the rise. And to me, that's a much better way to coach a kid, teach them to find a solution to the difficult high-balancing ball rather than adjusting the 
the the ball itself, the speed of the ball itself. To me, that that artificial way of approaching it is not as ideal. Much better to teach the kid to be more athletic, to move better, to read better, to adjust the body better, and and that developing those skills at a young age is much better in, for me in terms of high performance development than adjusting the the speed of the ball. Now, maybe for a kid who's not athletic, for a kid who's just a recreational player, whatever, I don't do that type of coaching. If you have a kid who who you don't think is uh, has much ability and they're really struggling, then maybe go with a softer ball and adjust uh, the constraints of the environment that way. But no, not for high performance, not for a gifted athletic young kid. You have a kid five, six, seven years old, and I've had many of them, and they can all play yellow ball full court. I'm talking about the good ones. There's never been a great player in the history of tennis. I'm going to say never who couldn't play with a yellow ball at a very young age because their eyes are tuned, tuned in, their eyes are, are sharp, their vision is good, their reactions are, are, they are gifted with their reactions and they're able to move with, with ability. You know, they're able to move quickly. So it's just a myth that if you have, that for a talented kid, they need to use a slower ball and play on a small court that they can't cover that little court, come on. Anyone with a lot of talent, any little kid with a lot of talent who's a runner, who's got some speed and some good, some, you teach them decent footwork, they can cover the size of the adult court. Absolute myth that a young kid cannot cover the, the, the size of the full court. Because the tennis court is quite small in comparison to other fields or courts that are made for adults. The ratio of tennis court size uh, to the to the the movement capability of a player is is not that not that extreme as compared to say a soccer field it makes sense to me that on a large soccer pitch a full size soccer pitch you wouldn't want to put a little kid and have them running down the full size of a soccer pitch it, the, the the field is huge compared to a young kid five to eight years old or whatever age you want to pick but a tennis court is not that huge in terms of uh, when you compare it vis-a-vis a, a young child and their movement capabilities. Not that big, actually. So I, I just, I say, I say, I call bullshit when, when you hear people saying, oh, the court, it's just too big for a little kid. It's just, you know, it's too much for them to manage. I call bullshit. And I say myth, untruth, fake news. It's a hoax, you know. As our president likes to say, my God, it's just not true. You know, little kids can manage the full court, and I think it's actually real good for them. It's, it's a positive to be challenged uh, to cover more distance, and, to, and then you have to teach them the proper foot skills also. Once, that, that should be the coach's job. The coach should be teaching excellent movement and foot skills at a very young age, from the youngest age, four, five, six, seven years old. And the coach should be teaching the player to read the incoming ball and to adjust to the incoming ball and, and to, to develop that vision and the reaction. That is a coach's job from the youngest years. And that's how I do it, and that's how I think junior development should be. Now, if you want to make a system, I would make the system U6. Come on. U6 is good. Let's get the little ones, two years old, three years old. They can play with red. Four and five maybe can play with, you know, orange. For, for We're talking the typical kid. Uh, 
You know, and then let's try to get them to green and yellow by six or seven, something like that. Let's try to do a progression like that. That makes a lot of sense. Then we can keep marketing the, the you know, we don't have to throw away the entire program. Don't have to throw away the baby with the bath water, right? We can keep a program that's in it is a net positive for tennis because it helps grow the game. It helps build the grassroots. But at the same time, we can have a system that's a little better for, for developing elite players and developing not, not even just the elite of the elite, but developing good, any decent athletic kid. We can develop them better with a U6 type of program rather than a U10 and certainly not a U12 program. It's the way U10 ROG has, has sort of evolved in the last 10 years is really a disaster when you have coaches and programs holding kids back until sometimes till 11, 12, or even 13 years old. This is happening around the U.S. I'm assuming it's happening around the world as well in places that are hotbeds for red, orange, green. And this is really a disaster for those kids. Those kids are being held back and they're not going to become as good high school players and as good college players as they could be. They're going to be way behind the development curve of the kids who are starting with a full core yellow ball uh, sooner. So I just think for the overall health of players who are performance players or high performance players, for God's sake, people, let's try to wake up and take a step back and look objectively at this new system that we put in place. You know, it's been about 10 years since we put this system in place. This is a system that really is only a 10-year trial or maybe even a little less depending on the region of the world. I remember I went to the ITF World Conference in Spain. It was in Valencia, I believe. And I heard for the first time that the world would be moving to a low compression ball system for tournament play, U10. It was going to become a worldwide mandate. And it was shocking to me. I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? They're going to mandate this for the entire world. And soon enough, it, the mandate followed in the U.S. The USDA followed suit. Hey, Sammy, how you doing? Hey, buddy, you want to snuggle? Want to say hi to everybody? That's Sammy, my tennis academy dog. He came to give me a little hug. So you saw this mandate being put in place. I don't know when the USDA did it. They followed a little after the, the ITF could have been... 2010 or 2011 or 2012 circa that time and you know we had a huge controversy at that time a lot of pushback from coaches in the development world still getting some pushback in different regions of the U.S. especially in Southern California there are different sections of the U.S. who have fought against the mandate of, of red, orange, green, especially the orange ball progression in junior tournaments. So now in the U.S., you must play in, I believe in almost every section now, you must play with an orange ball. You must play a certain number of designated tournaments in order to move up to a green ball, and then you must play a certain number of designated green ball tournaments to move up to, to be allowed to be uh, uh, permitted to play yellow. So that's the system in place here in the U.S. And I know every country has a slightly different approach. But to me, the way U10 is organized now is extremely heavy-handed. It's extremely top-down and bureauc bureaucratically produced. 
and it's very tone deaf to the needs of parents and to the to the voices of development coaches around especially in our country but but throughout the world so you have systems that are being put in place in a top-down way they're being forced down to the lower levels to the grassroots levels on young children and the organizations that are forcing these uh, these uh, they're forcing these mandates upon everyone they are not listening to the people that are actually paying for the tournaments and who are getting their kids involved in the sport parents don't want this system parents want choices and so i guess i fall into a very libertarian mindset in this way i don't like to see the the government or the 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 national body mandating forcing parents and children into a, a, a certain way. I like to see choice. I like to see freedom. I like to see uh, parents and kids being allowed to play whatever way they, they want, whatever way they feel best. And I like to see developmental coaches having a choice also to play their kids w uh, with a, a slower ball, smaller court, or if the kid is has the ability and the coach prefers to play with a uh, faster ball and a full court or full-size equipment. I think we should give freedom to the development, developmental coaches in the field and also freedom to the parents and the families who are supporting this whole, this whole thing. You know, they support the game. They are, the, the, they are the, the most important part of tennis is those families who are choosing to play uh, tennis with their kids, to bring their kids into the sport. Those families are the bedrock of the game. And when we turn them off, when we alienate those parents, and when we alienate those children, we do a disservice to the game. Anyway, it's, very, there's, it's a topic that I, I can go off on a number of tangents. We can go talk more about the developmental side from a coaching point of view. We can talk about the, the governing side in terms of what the national body's policies should be. We can talk about the impact on parents, and we can talk about the impact on the player. But in general, those are, those are the basic uh, overview of my thoughts. I've written a lot about it. I'll continue to write and speak out. Like I said, I, I wouldn't say that U10 is, should be abolished, because I think there are, uh, there are some positives that I mentioned in terms of growing the sport and growing the game. But at the same time, I don't want people to fall into the trap of thinking that if I want to play with a yellow ball, if I want to play with a full-size stick, if I want my child to play on a full court, if I believe my child is capable of doing that, I don't like the blowback that parents are getting from the tennis community, from other coaches who are misguided, from other programs and clubs. The backlash... And the blowback is so harsh and draconian. In many ways, parents who want to choose to develop their kid with a regular ball are just vilified. And many of them are told that they're being negligent. Many parents come to me. I have this talk with, with, with many families where they, they have been chastised by their, another coach or another school and they've been told that they are damaging their kid, that they may even ruin their child if they choose to play with the yellow ball, if they choose to play on a full court, if they choose to play with a normal racket. And I just think that is crazy land. That is bananas. 
And it's, it's unjust. It's wrong. It's wrong to, to tell parents something where they, we don't have evidence. There's no, there's no science on that. Now, you can say to a parent, in my opinion, I think it's safer to play with a softball, with a s- smaller stick, or I think it's better for your child for this reason or that reason. But please say it's your opinion. Please don't tell me that there's scientific proof of that. Because that is misleading and that is misguided. And that is unfair to the player and the parent and the family. It's just wrong. So I just want to clarify for for the coaches out there and the parents out there, please make sure you get your facts right. Facts matter. Science matters. Evidence matters. There are many things in tennis that are based on opinion and they're based on experience. And there's, we have a small amount of scientific evidence for certain perspectives in tennis. We, we just don't have enough research in tennis in general. So it's important to understand when you're making decisions for your player as a parent or a coach that you understand what do we have research for, what do we have, where do we have real facts to support this, real evidence, and where are we making decisions just based on experiential, da- experiential data, uh, you know, empirical evidence based on, on, on past uh, coaching experience or playing experience and based on opinion. We have to know when we're making decisions that are, based, that are opinion-based and that are not fact-based. And, and this is a case where the whole industry, the entire world, the entire tennis world has moved to a system, a system of training and a system of tournament play that is unproven. It's simply not a a proven system. Now, we can say we believe it's good. Talk to the French. They believe it's the best way. Talk to the Belgian Federation. They believe absolutely it's a better way to use these graduated methods to develop players. But that's their opinion. They don't have uh, evidence of that. I'm not even sure you could create a scientific study to prove that one way or the other. You'd have to have maybe two groups of similar ability, and they would have to train with yellow, and you know, one group would train with yellow, one group would train with uh, uh, in a, U, a typical U10 program, and you'd have to sort of somehow compare the results. I'm not even sure if it, it's possible to create a viable study like that. But please understand that these are the opinions of leaders in the field. These are this is not a proven method at all. And I will say for the record that I think that we've had 10 years of this program, and Let's do a, an analysis. Let's do a review and see how we feel about it. Let's take the consensus from coaches in the field. Let's take the co- a consensus from parents and players. Do we like the tournament mandate? Do we think this is a better way to develop players? Are players developing better technique in their U10 systems? Or is that more of a, a coach? Uh, does that more base, is that more based on the expertise of the coach? Because in my opinion... You can develop just as good technique with the yellow ball if the coach is expert, if the coach is, is focused and dialed in on the player and observing the player carefully. You can develop just as good a technical game with the yellow ball as you can with the colored ball. Colored ball doesn't ensure good technique. Colored ball doesn't ensure non-extreme grips. You know, that extreme grips can happen with anything. Bad technique can happen with any system. No system is going to save a kid who's not focused on their technique, who's being sloppy or undisciplined. The coach is what 
makes great technique. The coach using a methodology, using their expertise of technique and biomechanics to guide a player and the coach being very observant and always, always shaping the player day in and day out. That is what makes great technique in the little kid. It's not the environment so much. Now, the environment can be used as a tool. I like the saying that red, orange, green is more of a tool that you could use. It's not shouldn't be a rule. It's a tool. And I like that saying because, yeah, if you want to adjust the environment a little to help your player, okay, you, could, you can do that. And I'm not going to say never do that. But I'm telling you what makes great technique, what makes world-class fundamentals is the coach. It's the coach working hard within a methodology, within a pedagogy, using a pedagogy to, to shape that player. And it's not the colored balls. And so many coaches and parents now are like, oh, we're going to get great technique because we're using colored balls. It's a proven system. You know, my kid's assured of great technique. It's totally, totally false. False sense of security there. False notion. Be very, very careful with that line of thinking. Also, be very, very careful that, that your player is going to have a world-class foundation by 10 or 12. Or, or be very, very careful with the myth that tennis is, is a marathon and not a sprint. Because one of the first things that coaches who are using red, orange, green will tell parents is they'll say, Oh, don't, don't be impatient. You know, oh, let's not rush your child to play with the yellow ball. Don't rush the development. Remember, junior development is a marathon, it's not a sprint. I've debunked this, this saying before, and it's a very common saying that parents hear. The way I debunked it is by saying that it is both. It's a sprint and the marathon. You want to sprint that marathon. Don't tell me that if you spend a few more years in orange, there's no consequence to that because there are, there are ramifications for that. If you hold a kid who's talented, who's a decent athlete or a good athlete, if you hold that kid back for two years in orange, there are consequences to that. And that means that another kid who's not being held back is moving ahead along the race. And you may or may not be able to catch that kid. And that is the, the problem that I see a lot is my job is to develop players who are leading the race who develop a world-class foundation. And if you spend too long in the softball environment, in a small court environment, it's detrimental to the player. And I don't want to hear anyone tell me. I, I, will, I will insist that it's detrimental. It undermines the player's development in the long run. And usually the justification for holding them back is to say that tennis is long-term development, that junior, junior development is a, more of a marathon and then, inevitably, the parents are chastised. The parents are scolded for trying to push their kid along too fast. The parents are scolded for trying to challenge the little kid, their, 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 talent, their player, who they think can do a little more. And the coaches are the ones holding the kids back and teaching to a lower common denominator. And I think that's a huge mistake. It's a huge problem that we see in 10 and under tennis right now and it's happening around the world in the US in my neck of the woods here in the US in my region I see it a lot but I know it's happening around the world and in the end can a great player survive a red orange green environment and and become a world-class player I'm sure yes can you use a red orange green system to develop a world-class player yes but it should be more accelerated and 
a talented player may survive that system and still develop good power later on. They may still develop great movement and eyes and things like that later on. So I'm not saying you can't do it with the talented player, but I'm saying that it's a myth that it's the only way, it's the, and it's a myth that it's the best way. We have no evidence of that. We can't prove that it's a better way. And in fact, I would say that the bulk of coaching experience in the trenches from the leaders in the world would, would, would dictate that, would, would, would really support that it's better to move to yellow and full-size and uh, full-size court, full-size racket earlier rather than later, that that is more of an assurance of developing to an elite level than staying longer in, in a red-orange-green environment. So those are the bottom lines, guys. I hope you find that helpful. I know we're going to get a lot of questions on this. I appreciate all the waves. I appreciate everyone tuning in on a Friday morning. And it's one of, this is a very interesting topic to me because I want to see how it's going to play out on the world stage. I want to see over the next decade, for example, what is the feedback that we're going to get? What are the federations going to do? Will the mandate be phased out for tournament play? It may. Will it be adjusted? Will the program be refocused to six and under or eight and under, where I think it's more, which would be more appropriate? I don't know what's going to happen with the governing bodies, but I know that it, with my players and my families, I have a few kids using softer ball, but they're quite young. I respect the parent. If the parent says to me, Chris, I feel more comfortable with orange ball because I really believe that my player's not ready. I really believe they're going to get hurt. It, uh, they may risk an injury. I, I will respect that. I'm not going to uh, uh, not work with the kid because the parent wants me to use a red, orange, green uh, colored ball or use a smaller core. I have a few players doing that right now. I respect them. I give them my opinion. I try to make my case. But at the end of the day, I listen to the parent and I work within, uh, within what the parent wants. I think that's part of being a flexible coach. But at the same time, I might introduce some yellow ball maybe in drills, maybe with, ba with baskets. You know, I try, to get, I try to encourage the kid to use a, a little better size racket for them. And I try to encourage the parent to move them along quicker rather than slower, right? So I think it's important to be flexible. I am not doctrinaire on this issue by far because I think when you have a situation where we don't have the evidence, it's important as a coach to understand, uh, to respect different opinions, uh, but to also try to make the best decision based on your, your own experience and the, and the experience of history. So that's sort of where I think we are. I don't know what's going to happen next, next decade or two. I anticipate somewhat of a reversal. I anticipate some... some adjustment in the way red, orange, green, and U10 is being marketed. And I, I, I believe there will be a pushback, uh, more and more pushback from the developmental coaching world. The, 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 I think we will see some readjustment and refocusing, hopefully to a younger. And I think that we'll start to hear more and more coaches like me, leading coaches, leading junior development coaches who will be feel comfortable speaking out and saying, you know, we'd like to see this changed or adjusted. We would like to see talented kids being allowed to passport sooner uh, into a yellow ball and full court. We would, we, would, we would like to 
push back against some of the myths that are being promoted. Because when the program was first rolled out, there was such a, a, a big push to convince the whole world that this is the best way that I think it went over the top and that, that the marketing and advertising went farther than what, what was really true. And so because of that, I think there needs to be a, 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 a correction. There needs to be a correction, hopefully in the next decade or two, where, where the, the information is more accurate and that parents and coaches uh, push back against the myths of red, orange, green, and that the whole world comes to sort of a better consensus where we say, yes, this is the great system to get your young kid enthusiastic about the game. This is a great system to grow the game at the bottom of the pyramid. This is a, a good tool to use with some kids, especially some kids who are having trouble tracking and moving. But this is, this is not, not the best way to develop a high-performance player. And if we do use it, we want to move the high-performance players along quite quickly. And we don't want to fall into the trap of saying that this is a long-term development, that we need to take our time and we need to be very, uh, extremely patient uh, with, uh, with kids in this type of environment. I think that the, there are many myths like that that need to be dispelled and, and parents and coaches need to try to foster an environment where we can discuss these types of, uh, of falsities uh, and specious, uh, specious statements without uh, too much... Uh, without it being so controversial, because one of the issues that I have with, with red, orange, green, and 10 under 10 nowadays is that if you speak out like the way I'm doing now, you risk vilification. You risk extreme pushback from the powers that be, from uh, national federations. You, you risk being ostracized. You risk being uh, made to feel like you're on the fringe, which, which you shouldn't be made to feel that way if you have a, a dissenting viewpoint. And the, the pressure, the pressure campaign, the marketing campaign, the, uh, the propaganda, I would say, is so strong and the movement is so, has been so powerful in the last decade that coaches who don't agree are, are pushed to the side and pushed to the fringe and made to... Uh, and are, are sometimes accused of being negligent. Like I said, like parents, they're sometimes accused of, of doing something that would damage a young kid or that risks injury for a young player. And I think that that is really wrong to push dissenters out like that and to put so much pressure on dissenters that, that they don't feel comfortable raising uh, different viewpoints in, in the, the natural discussion and discourse that's happening in the tennis community. And so that's what uh, maybe the culture, just the, the, the emotions and the, the, the culture of the whole debate needs to change in the next decade so that we can have a, a, a positive, fruitful debate, fruitful discussion, and that everyone can get in a room and talk about positives and negatives without there being uh, extreme vilification of people who don't agree with the status quo or with the with what's coming down, the message that's coming down from the top of the mountain, from the top of leading organizations in the business. And that is difficult because one of the things is that there's a lot of money behind red, orange, green. You know, this is this is a financial there's a financial part of this, and I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but there's a lot of pressure coming down from the manufacturers from the organizations that have tie-ins with, um, 
with that have financial tie-ins to this whole program. So I think the best thing that's possible is to try to refocus the program a little younger, like U6 or U8, and then all of the financial incentives can still be there for manufacturers, you know, ball manufacturers, equipment manufacturers, and the 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 organizations who are promoting this for their coaches and and for growing the game there's a big financial uh, incentives here to to push these programs but let's reorganize them refocus them on a slightly younger level blow up that grassroots level and that way we can have the best of both worlds we get we grow the game we we get more players involved in tennis we we grow the the financial benefits of the game for everyone for all of the stakeholders but we also have a system that promotes better high performance development and that's sort of what what I'd like to see and for god's sakes let's change the 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 environment the the the, the stigmatizing of of coaches who dissent you know because dissenters now who don't who want to play with yellow who want to train with yellow parents and coaches are are heavily stigmatized and heavily vilified and i just think it's plain wrong because at, at the end of the day we don't have evidence for what's right and wrong these are these are opinion based programs opinion based movements so that's how i see it in, in many ways the movement for red orange green and 10 and under 10 is in many countries in, in for me resembles a cult like movement there's a religious zealotry that is accompanied with this movement that I think is is w- totally misguided and unfair to people who want to dissent, and that is uh, that is a, a huge problem because whenever something becomes zealous, when a movement becomes zealous and over emotional and religious and cult like, doctrinaire, then the room for there's no room for intelligent discussion, rational debate anymore. There, it, it just becomes a, a, an emotional issue that's radicalized. And that's where I feel the, the game for 10 and under tennis has moved to in the last 10 years. For better, for worse, maybe it's just the, the overemphasis on trying to convince everyone that this is the best way to go. And now we have almost a religious cult-like movement that's based a lot on, on misinformation. And it's based a lot on opinion and, a lot, and not on evidence. And, and it's created an environment where dissent is, is not allowed and dissent is, is crushed, you know, and dissenters are vilified. So that's what I would say about that. I see a few questions on the board. Let me answer those quickly. And then I, was, I wanted to talk briefly about another controversial topic in tennis, which is anabolics and ergogenic aids and doping, which I think is not a subject that's talked about, but I sort of it's a, it's a subject that interests me and that I'm concerned about. Let's see what Paul Jessup says. Yes, we get uh, my buddy over in England. He's able to tune into the show today. Good job, Paul. Maybe we'll do the show a little more on, uh, you know, a little more frequently on Friday so that some of my friends uh, international and the international audience that we have can sometimes join in live because I know they get shut out when I do the show late at night on Thursday night. The folks over in England and in Europe are usually sleeping. Paul says, has there been any research done that surveys the world's top players to see who developed with ROG and who skipped it? I reckon a survey would show most skipped it. It would be an interesting survey to do on the pros. 
Right. So that would be sort of an informal form of research. And I, I think that there's been some informal surveys, you know, just interviews and things like that. But it would be nice to see a more comprehensive study of that. That wouldn't be too hard to pull off, would it? A simple survey of top players now and also the next gen players coming up and how many of them used uh, red, orange, green, uh, low compression ball, how many of them used, it's not just the ball, remember, it's also the graduated length racket. How many of them used a, a small light racket and for how long, until what age, and also how many of them played on the graduated court, because I think those three variables are all intertwined. It's not just the ball, it's not just the racket, it's not just the court. All three of those factors can contribute better to high performance or they can undermine high performance development. So you have to be very careful with how you talk about the issue. And that would be a great, relatively easy study to perform, right? I will tell you that many top players now and leading coaches have been put under a pressure campaign to advocate red, orange, green and tenant under tennis, when in fact they don't actually believe in it. I know for a fact, and I've interviewed some of the biggest names in coaching, I know for a fact that if you ask them in private whether they believe in red, orange, green for the really good players that they coach or whether they use softballs or small court for the best players that they have or the best players who they develop, they will admit to you that they don't. But their marketing campaigns, when they're doing advertisements for, let's say, the USTA or the ITF, they say the opposite. So there's a double talk that's happening and that's mainly due to the pressure that they feel from those organizations. They may be employed by those organizations. They may have financial entanglements with those organizations. And so they feel pressure to say the right thing, quote unquote, when they're doing advertisements or they're doing public speaking. But if you speak to those folks in private, they will tell you a story or when you see them working with their elite players in private usually you see a different story and so I think that is part of the sort of the disinformation campaign that's going on and I think parents have a right to know about that and they have a right to know that sometimes what they see on the tennis channel in terms of an advertisement or something that they read online or or read in an uh, in a in an, an automatic like a magazine like an article is can sometimes be very biased and sometimes can be misleading or untrue. Let's see, we have another quote on the board. Thank you guys for tuning into the show and waving. Uh, my friend Jay says that his son picked up the racket at 10 and started competing. He never did the red, orange, green progression. In the US we have a mandated progression where you cannot play a yellow ball tournament under 10 and you have to qualify for a yellow ball 12s division. The coaches wanted him to do green ball but he accident accidentally went to a yellow ball clinic and they kept him there feeling he was ready for it. But I feel he has holes in his technique as compared to the kids who went through that progression. His competitive spirit and hard work still make him competitive with kids who have been playing for a lot more years and went through ROG. But I do wonder if he missed out on those gaps and may show up in the next age group competition thoughts. Yeah, Jay, unfortunately, I completely disagree with, with your perspective there in terms of, in terms of Ian. You know, I coach, this is a, a boy that I coach. He's a, he's a gifted player 
in terms of him missing out on technical technical skills because he skipped to a yellow ball. I don't believe that's the reason at all. If he's missing out on technical skills, it's because of the coach. It's because of the coaching environment and the pedagogy and the methodology that, that was used. I don't think it's because of the, the speed of the ball at all. So I just don't buy that link. I think it's a tendentious link. It's a, it's a, speech, it's, it's a false link. So I, I disagree with that. I think that if you want a kid to develop good technical skills and a fully complete game, it's, that comes down to the coach. And any dynamic, any dynamic coach who is an expert in motivation and training junior kids will make sure that the kid has a complete technical game. I don't care if they're using any ball, any color ball. Sometimes I joke that with many of my talented kids, I wish there was a purple ball which was faster, and I would probably use that, and I can guarantee you the kids would have good technical development if I used a faster ball than yellow. Because in the end, it comes down to the discipline and the care and the attention to detail of the coach. It's not the ball which creates good technique. So I just disagree with your premise there, Jay. All right. If you have any further questions, guys, let me know. I'm going to just briefly touch on doping in sports. So do you guys think that a lot of the top tennis players are, are doping? I've got to uh, make just let's touch on the subject briefly, and then I've got to run. I'm going overtime here. I've got to get to my boxing lesson, my MMA lesson. I got, you know, it's a little bit of black eye here, guys. I got kicked in the head yesterday, but I'm doing fine now. Don't worry about little me. Uh, I got to go to MMA class in a few minutes. So, yeah, and I think, by the way, most tennis kids should take MMA or they should box or do some type of of, uh, wrestling or grappling, some type of martial art to make them tougher because most tennis kids are way too soft. By the way, that's my plug for martial arts, for all you parents out there and for all you coaches, get your kids involved in martial arts, get your kids on the mat, get them punched in the head a little bit, or get their arm twisted, or get them pushed and shoved, and let them feel the fear of, being, of getting hurt from someone, and it will make them a lot stronger when they come back to the tennis court. That's my plug for martial arts. There's also a lot of athletic benefits to martial arts in terms of the eyes, and of course the athleticism that martial arts builds. So, but it's not just for me the athleticism that martial arts is good for developing, it's also the the fighting spirit and the ability to conquer fear, fear of getting hurt, fear of, the, of, the, of your rival. I think that's very important. So just briefly, what do you guys think? I mean, leave, leave, leave me a comment. Let me, you think that a lot of the top guys are doping? It's not just steroids anymore. You know, there's a lot of advanced, I could say technological aids that, that players are using, whether it's Hi, um, uh, there, there are chambers that players can use to, like, like that simulate high altitude so that they can improve their red blood cell count that are currently legal, I believe. There are all sorts of modalities that are used to enhance recovery, whether it be cryo, uh, cryotherapy. There are, it, there's advanced cryotherapy now that the top players are all using. There are different hydrotherapies. There's, there's all sorts of there, there, I don't know if you've seen, for example, uh, some of the, the new compression suits or pants that are used to, to aid in, in the recovery to help flush 
cellular waste and reduce soreness. There's all sorts of technologies that players are using not only to enhance their recovery, but also to enhance their athletic skills. There's now different technologies to train vision and reaction time and other athletic abilities, you know. So there's a number of different uh, aids that are being used to, uh, to enhance the athleticism of players and drugs are, are just one of them. So I think within this discussion, what do we allow? What do we not allow? It filters down to the junior level. What is appropriate for young kids to be using? I think that in the junior world, most kids are not taking steroids. Most kids are not taking anabolics the way you might see in some other sports where it's more prevalent. So, for example, football or sometimes in track and field, there are some sports that have a reputation for a high, uh, high levels of doping or high per- higher percentage uh, of doping. I think in tennis, in, in junior tennis, it's probably not a very common issue, but I, I have a suspicion that on the pro tour, it's, it's very prevalent. And I don't know the percentages. I have no inside information on that. But I, I would point to a, a couple areas of concern for me is that you hear a lot now that the professionals are playing longer and longer. You see guys who are playing into their late 30s, even into their 40s now. The, the lifespan, the career span of top players is, is incredibly long now. And, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, that's attributable to improved coaching and sports science and medicine and things like that. But whenever you start talking about improved sports science and medicine, you have to include, you have to consider, you have to consider drugs and medications and doping as a potential factor in increasing the career lifespan of players, allowing players to compete more frequently and to recover better at an older age. And I think that it's conceivable that more and more of of the players on tour are using these types of aids to help them compete better. There's no way of proving that. And some of you may see that there is some of you may say to me, well, isn't there drug testing, right? Don't you think there's a, isn't there a lot of drug testing on tour at the high level? And there is a doping protocol in place. But to my mind, the players who have a lot of money are able to hire their own doctors and they're able to use, uh, they're able to sometimes create very specific drugs that are not uh, able to be, analyzed for. They're not able to be detected by the current uh, doping tests that we have. So they're able to, to uh, they can hire doctors to generate uh, uh, designer drugs that are, that are very difficult to detect. And they can also have a, uh, or they could also take a- anabolics or ergogenics that are, uh, the doctor can titrate to certain levels that don't reach the threshold of being detectable. There, there's a lot of stuff that can happen when you have a lot of money to spend and you have a good doctor, a good science team, sports science team uh, beside you to help you avoid getting caught uh, by the ITF and, uh, and the, uh, the, the doping controls that are in place. So I just think that don't tell me that because there's testing that there's no doping, that it's just a, a, that's a myth. 
And it's just a question of how many guys are doing it, what is the pressure to do it, can you win a Grand Slam, can you compete at the top level of the game nowadays uh, without doping, and that's sort of a question that I have. I, I don't have all the answers on this, but I have suspicions. And in, in, on one hand, it makes me sad. I would like to see, I would like to imagine a sport that is clean. And I'd like to imagine a sport that, that has, where all of the players are competing on, on an even uh, playing field. I think the ones that are getting caught are the ones that don't have the money to evade the testing. They, they maybe cannot afford a more, uh, more advanced designer drugs. And, uh, the ones, the, the, the ones who, who are, have more resources are able to, are, are less detectable, uh, are, are maybe taking things that are less detectable. Also, sometimes, you know, there have been many, there have been some stories in the news where when a very famous player has a false test that they are sort of coddled and protected more by, by the powers that be. Uh, and the, sometimes the, the lower ranked players who are less famous or are less important to the bottom lines of tournaments are less protected and sometimes they are the ones who are getting penalized the most as compared to the famous players. But, you know, there have been a number of cases in the news in the last couple of years of players being caught for uh, different steroids in their system or different uh, ergogenic or anabolic um, enhancers in their system. So I don't think it's a topic that is uh, like a, a wild conspiracy, uh, conspiratorial notion. I think it, it's, it's just a, a topic that interests me, and I'm wondering how prevalent it is. My suspicions are that it is quite prevalent. I, I don't know the statistics on it. I would like to believe that I can develop some world-class players who don't need to dope. That's really the bottom line for me as a coach and developing my, my junior players. I, I want to believe that you can get to the top without any kind of steroid or anabolics in your system. But I'm having my doubts. I'm feeling cynical about it. What do you guys think? Do you think it's, it's common or, or, or you think that, that you think all the players are clean? Or, or how do you feel about the issue? I think it, for juniors, in junior development, I think we have a pretty clean, pretty clean tennis world. I know that there are always going to be a very small percentage of crazy parents who who supplement their kids with, with ergogenics that are borderline illegal could be something as innocent as, as uh, uh, well, uh, that's over the, could be something over the counter like caffeine or, or could be some, it could even be an illegal steroid or an illegal ergogenic. But I don't think most parents are crazy enough to do that. I think for, for the majority of parents in junior tennis, it, it's a, and for most families, it's, it's a clean sport in that respect. But, you know, there's always crazy parents out there. There's always stories that you hear of parents uh, getting prescriptions for growth hormone for their kids, uh, giving their kids, uh, uh, hyping them up on, on caffeine or other stimulants before matches and things like that. I just think that that is a shame. If that's becoming more common, that is a true shame. And another example of how uh, cheating is so pervasive in, in, in tennis these days, there's so little... Uh, character development in the players these days and I know that cheating is is a big problem in junior tennis I just hope that with all of the advances that we see in in medicine and 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 drugs and that that parents aren't taking that extreme leap and doping their kids that that would be a, a, a just a very sad development in junior tennis at the top level on the pro tour 
I am, uh, I have my doubts. And I, I just, I, I will always be a skeptic now. Ever since what happened with Lance Armstrong, I just, uh, you know, what you see is the, the, the best professional athletes in the world. I, I'm going to always have my doubts because I, I felt very betrayed by that, by Lance in that story. And it's, it's an example where what the top athletes will do is they will always deny, deny, deny. They will always deny right to their grave. Sometimes the, the most elite athletes who are doping, they start to believe that it's, sometimes they, they actually believe that they're not doing, any, doing it, that they're, they're not doing anything wrong, or they become so twisted in their thought process that they won't even tell their, their close loved ones, like their wives don't even know. Nobody knows. The only people that know are them and their doctor. And at least at the pro level, they're using a doctor to help them, and it's, it's less medically risky. You know, the, the problem is at the lower levels with players who, have don't, who don't have resources, so players on the lower level tours, or with juniors, the parents may not have the knowledge or the medical expertise to, to dope safely. And that's where the health concerns really come in. So that's, those are some thoughts. I, like I said, I, I don't have... A, any inside information. I only have suspicions and I think it's an, an area that, that I'm interested in learning more about. I'm interested in getting different opinions and feedback on that uh, from you guys. So leave some comments for me if you'd like. Let me know and I will. Uh, we can maybe foster a discussion on that. We can maybe be a topic of a future episode. But, you know, I will say that, that ever since Lance, man, because that dude... He was like a hero, right? And for so, for so long, he said, no, never denied it, uh, never did this, never did that. And then, you know, the truth came out. And I just, we put these top athletes on a pedestal and we, we, we love them and we, we worship them. And I, I always think there's a shadow side that, that we have to be realistic about. I hope that in the sport of tennis, to get to the top, it's not necessary to dope. I, I really, I really want to believe that. If my, if my kid wants to be a pro tennis player, that he, there, there, won't be, there won't be a point at which he will be forced to make that decision, make a potentially unhealthy decision for him. Uh, in some other sports, I'm not so sure. Like, for example, track and field. My son is a runner. And he's in track and field, and he's in cross country. Can you become a world champion in track and field without doping? Uh, with in cycling, in in some of the sports, we know that there's a lot of doping. Uh, in in, uh, I I don't know. I just don't know. So I have these serious concerns as a parent. So this is one of the reasons why doping and and anabolic supplementation, anabolic ergogenic aids, the, the issue is on my mind a lot because I'm raising my children and I want to know. I want to know what they're in for, what's in store for them in the future. Are they going to be faced with a very difficult ethical decision in their chosen sport? It's, something, it's a topic of concern for me. should be for all parents who are raising athletes. All right, guys, I got to sign off. I got to get to MMA class. I will try to answer the additional questions here in the comments section of the show. I appreciate you guys tuning in. It was awesome, a lot of fun. I think we hit on some good topics. I will work hard to get the podcast edited and up for you guys real soon. I know a lot of you guys enjoy watching the show or listening to the show on, 
on your favorite podcasting platform. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing the show with others. Guys, Summer Camp 2020 is coming up. You know we've got a great high-performance summer camp in the mountains of Vermont. I encourage you to check it out. Contact me if you're interested in bringing your player to train with me. I would love to meet them. And I'll continue pushing my summer camp because I really do think it's one of the best in the U.S. And we do a fantastic, high-quality job. So summer camp's coming up. Let's get excited. I'll see you guys on the next show. As always, God bless. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Vamos!